I tell you this morning, I feel a bit like the um, elderly chap that would read the, the obituaries. And somebody said, why do you read that? Doesn't that depress you? He said, I'm just trying to make sure that my name's not in there. And because uh, today I, I walk in and I'm thinking, yeah, okay, this is number four in the series on the table. And then the headline on the newsletter is, the table series concludes this Sunday. It's even got an exclamation point. I'm thinking, you, you folks really, you're not subtle with your hints, are you? You're like, wrap it up. I'm surprised. Next week I'll probably see in here, you know, right there after Coins for Christ in a song, it will say, a 15-minute sermon. Yeah. Go ahead, be specific. But I can take it. I mean, I, I do my best. But now it's all a bit of fun. It's just, you know, we miscommunicate. But it doesn't conclude this Sunday. Give it a few more if the Lord wills. So really, we've got two more in this series left, and then we've got some news about Easter and what's coming up. And um, today, I want us to go to the city of Corinth, okay? That I want us to visit this city on the, you know, in Greece, uh, it's still there today, <clears throat> but it's very different. Not far from Athens, there on this, this isthmus that goes between two bodies of water is this port city of Corinth, which was a crossroads of trade and culture in its day. There's hundreds of temples there in the middle of the first century. There are hundreds of cults and religions there's a lot of people coming from all over the known world to Corinth. And one of those is the Apostle Paul. And he arrives and forms a community of believers there on one of his missions. And for the next year and a half, he spends that time teaching them about the Gospel and about Jesus Christ and what it means to be believers. And this is well after the church has established that the believers and the community of believers is made up of both people from a Jewish background and people from a Gentile background. And Corinth does a good job of blending all of that and more. But there's problems in Corinth. And so after Paul has left the city of Corinth and he's gone on to Ephesus, he hears news and he stays in touch with that church back in Corinth and finds out that there are problems over there. And so we have a chain of correspondence that includes 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And actually, 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians because we don't have 1 Corinthians. It's 0 Corinthians. We lost that. So don't even worry about those numbers and what they are. Just know that we've got this ongoing chain of communication, either through letters or by personal visits, from Paul and the Corinthian church leaders. And there are problems. What's wrong with Corinth? You could sum it up with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8.1, that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And there's many of the Corinthians who think that their ability to know things or to know more than others makes them more qualified. Paul wants them to know that you can have all knowledge 
and that's going to puff you up, but if you have love, that's going to build up the church. Seems that there are factions and divisions based on the approved or favored leaders. You read this in chapter 1. You read this in chapter 3. And Paul will address this and he'll say, I've heard that there's divisions among you. One of you says, I follow Apollos. Another one says, I follow Cephas. Another says, I follow Paul. And still others say, I follow Christ. He says, Christ is not divided. And Paul will spend much of the letter dismantling their notion of factions built around either the approved leaders like Paul or the ones who are right there and have the right set of gifts to somehow have their knowledge puffing them up to lead the church. There's disruptions in worship. There's rivalries over whether the tongue speakers should have all the the prominence there and speak in their strange spiritual languages or, or whether the prophets should lead out with prophecy. Just exactly who gets to do what. But instead of worship being a unifying experience, it's become a disrupting, dividing experience. And one of the ways that that shows up is their disregard for one another in the Lord's Supper meal. And that's what we want to look at. Because as we look at this section in 1 Corinthians 11, which is familiar to many of us when we read it before we take the Lord's Supper, we're going to read it again. And I'm glad that it's familiar to us. But I want you to understand also that this was written as a corrective to a problem. So when we gain some information about how the Lord's Supper what it ought to be, understand that the recipients of this message, that's exactly what Paul's saying to them. He's telling them what it should be, that it was not what they had made out of it. But this is what it should be. And we're going to see how he does that. Let's read the text together. I'm going to start in uh, 1 Corinthians 11. uh, And uh, this this is from the Greek New Testament. It looks like English, but it's from the Greek. All right, 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 34. Paul says, Your worship services do you more harm than good. And I am certainly not going to praise you for this. I am told that you can't get along with each other when you worship, and I am sure that some of what I have heard is true. You seem determined to have factions just so the approved leaders are highlighted. When you meet together, you don't really celebrate the Lord's Supper. You even start eating before everyone gets to the meeting. And some of you go hungry while others get drunk. Don't you have homes where you can eat and drink? Do you despise God's church? Do you want to embarrass people who don't have anything? What can I say to you? I certainly cannot praise you. I myself took from the Lord what I handed off to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that He was handed over, took bread, gave thanks, He broke it, and He said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. And after the meal, Jesus took a cup of wine and said, This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink for the remembrance of me. 
So whenever you should eat this bread and should drink from the cup, you all send a message about the death of the Lord until He comes. So, whoever should eat the bread or should drink from the cup of the Lord in a way that is not worthy of the Lord will be guilty and accountable for the body and blood of the Lord. And each of you must prove yourself by the way you eat the bread and drink the cup. For you are eating and drinking a verdict against yourself if you eat and drink without any regard of the body. On account of this, many of you are weak and sick and a few have fallen asleep. But if we regard one another, we won't be judged. And being judged by the Lord, we're being disciplined in order to keep us from being condemned with the rest of the world. Now then, my friends, you must wait for one another before you get together to eat. If anyone is really hungry, then eat at home. Then you won't condemn yourselves when you gather together. After I arrive, I will instruct you about any other matters. This is Paul's instruction to a broken church in Corinth. He's trying to correct their misguided and toxic practice of the Lord's Supper. So there's three things I want to discuss here as we consider what this means for us. First of all is the problem. Let's diagnose the problem. In verses 17 through 22, Paul lays it out to them and he says, here's what I've heard, here's what you've written about, this is what I know, there's a problem in what you're doing. The gathering together is leading to that which is worse, not better. You know, when we come together in worship, when we come together and partake of the Lord's Supper, not only is that meant to be a benefit to us as individuals, but it's meant to be a benefit to the body of Christ. It's meant to be a benefit to the unity and the love and the, the building up of the church. In other passages in 1 Corinthians, Paul will mention that where he'll talk about knowledge puffing up, but love building up. And whatever gift God has given you, use it for the edification or the building up of the church. What they're doing in Corinth is not leading to that. In fact, it's highlighting their factions. It's highlighting their cliques. Now, this may have been an attempt to highlight their approved leaders. And that's why in that translation that we just read, words that had to do with approved and prove yourself are highlighted because what you see in the original languages, it's the same root word, this, this word there in red, which is, I, there's a few... Uh, language nerds out there, so I do this for you. If this doesn't help you, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. So I do it out of love for those who love this kind of thing. Hoi dokimoi. Those are the ones who are the approved ones. The special ones. It, It means being put to the test. It means that you've been proven and shown worthy. Now, it may be that Paul's being a bit sarcastic and he's saying, I guess you have to have factions so that you can see who those people really are, those special approved ones. Or it may be that he's saying, you just seem determined to divide up like this, all because status means so much to you and being proved to be the real leaders of the church. I don't know. Oh, those are all possible. 
But it doesn't take away from the same problem going on here, whatever they're doing and their misunderstanding of what it means to be approved and put to the test. Don't lose sight of that word because we're going to come back to it later. The other part of the problem is that they're not eating the Lord's Supper. Paul will say, you're not eating the Lord's Supper, you're eating your own supper. That instead of being able to attach this to the Lord as the host, the Lord is present in this, the Lord as the one in whose name that we gather, they've made this about themselves. Each one of them is focused on their self with no regard for the others. They do not discern the body. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul will move between the body referring to the bread or the body of the actual physical body of Christ, but he will also use the term body to refer to the church, the body of Christ. For example, in chapter 12, he he speaks of there being one body with many, many members. There he's talking about the church, the body of Christ. There's no regard for the body of Christ in the way that they do the Lord's Supper. And Paul says that's part of the problem. They're not sharing the meal. And one of the things we need to recognize as well is that in the first century, this would have been a real meal. It would have been for the feeding of people. I'm saying it would have had bread and there would have been a cup. But there would also be the sharing of food in such a way some who did not have food were actually fed. Now, to enrich our understanding of communion, not only during this series, but at all times, we might want to take a step back and observe how food plays a part in ancient cultures and in many cultures today around the world and how hospitality has to do with that. If you want to learn more about that, go on a trip like the Dominican Republic trip. You'll see that. You'll know that. Any of you who've spent time in another community or with people where food is scarce, you get this. You don't just turn food into a little play symbol and leave it at that. It's real. It's food. But that doesn't mean that it's not special, and that doesn't mean that it's not symbolic or meaningful or worshipful. In fact, it might even be more so. Some people are indulging in this food to the point of getting drunk, so you can see how selfish and self-centered they've become with this. What we take from this is that when communion or worship becomes all about our own experience and all about me, there's a problem. Even when we're focused on our own knowledge of worship and does it suit me and does it meet my sensibilities and, and am, I, am I really, really experiencing this with regard for anyone else, or am I just focused on what I think and how I feel? That's a problem. Against that problem, then, in the next few verses, Paul goes to a precedent. The precedent is what Jesus did. And so here we have the earliest, uh, the earliest description of what happened to Jesus at what we call the Last Supper. Now, you'll never find the words Last Supper in the Bible. Okay? It's not called that. Uh, you'll see it in Matthew and Mark and Luke, and it will, it'll fit very closely to this account 
that Paul is giving to the Corinthians. And Paul knew of this before he passed it on to the Corinthians. When I say this is the earliest telling of this, it's because 1 Corinthians was written before Matthew, Mark, and Luke were put to paper. Now those stories pre-existed, but the writing of it came later. One of the wonderful things here, and this goes back to our series on the Word, is there's a consistency in the way that they describe that event. And that tells us something about the meaning of it. Paul will locate this in time not as the Passover. And I'm not saying it wasn't the Passover. The Gospels say it is you know, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And by the way, if you, we'll talk more about this in a special class coming up on March 27th on the connection between the Passover and the Lord's Supper. Wait for March uh, 27th. That's at 9.30 a.m. or tune in online. Okay, So there's, a, there's something... Uh, as an extra bonus feature of all of this. Seems to be a topic of interest. Anyway, Paul describes this as the night that Jesus was given up or the night that He was betrayed. That's interesting, isn't it? Wouldn't that be something interesting to point out to a group that is filled with factions? That on the night that Jesus shared this meal with His friends, with His disciples, and told them what it meant, it's also the night that one of them betrayed Him and gave Him up. Is it possible that Paul is saying to the Corinthians that when you focus on yourselves and you exclude others and you don't show hospitality and you're focused on your own self, that what you're doing is you are betraying Christ as well? It makes you think about it at least. Anyway, Paul looks to the night that Jesus was given up and he remembers the words or he he mentions and cites the words that Jesus said. And there does seem to be a pattern in this when you look at Luke's Gospel and when you look at Matthew and Mark, but particularly Luke's Gospel, who was an associate of Paul. Jesus took bread, He gave thanks, He broke it. And He says, this is My body, given for you. Now I know some translations of 1 Corinthians will say broken for you. The truth is, in the original, it's neither broken nor given. There's a blank there. It, 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 it basically says, this is my body on behalf of you. That's good Greek. That's bad English. So we, I think it makes more sense to say, he's saying, this is my body, which is for you. This is my body given for you. Because there's all this mention of, of giving up. Sacrifice. And that is a theme in 1 Corinthians as well. And then he wants them to do this as a remembrance of him, as a way of re-experiencing and recollecting, and really experiencing all over again his presence. Likewise, the cup after the supper, and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink as a remembrance of me. Last week we mentioned covenant and what covenant meant. And here you see that it plays an important part of the experience of the Lord's Supper. But one more thing Paul says about this that we may overlook. That there is a message in this remembrance. There's a message for us, but there's a message for one another, and there's a message for all of the world. That when others 
experience this meal with us or when they experience us recalling the Lord, however it is, there is a message in this. Paul says, just as Jesus pointed out, that whenever we eat this bread, whenever we drink this cup, it's a proclamation of His death until He comes again. So wrapped up in this is the message and the experience of the Gospel. The sacrifice and the hope. That's the precedent. And so from this precedent, Paul is able to give this weak and sick, dying Corinthian church a prescription. And it's two things. These are the two imperatives, the two commands that follow this. Number one, Each of us must prove or pass the test. There's your doki word again. Doki mazetto. Which means, it's an imperative that says, we, we translate it often as examine yourself. But we might get the idea that examining myself means that I'm supposed to close my eyes and think, now when did I sin this week? And does that mean I get to take the Lord's Supper or not? Better check. Or it might mean that I have to think to myself, what am I really thinking about here? And what what am I supposed to think? But remember, if you go too far with that, if you go too far with that, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. This is more than just attitude or thinking. It's attitude, thinking, and behavior. This again is that same word about the approved leaders. The word really has the context of something being verified, something being put to the test, and it stands the test. Just like uh, testing metals or testing whether or not currency is real or not counterfeit. This is proving worthy. We must each pass the test of participating worthily in the Lord's Supper. How do we do that? Well, he describes it. He says, first of all, by discerning or having consideration for the body of Christ. That is the church. It's it's safe to assume that this is the church in that context because he doesn't say the body and the blood here. Every other incident when he's talking about the eating and the drinking, this Lord's Supper meal, he will mention the body and the blood, the body and the blood. But here, he, me- he mentions just the body. And it could mean, it's, I think it's a, a, a safe bet, that he means the church. That when we eat or drink, it, it may also, it's also possible he has both in mind. And that's a very poetic and very inspired move. When you take the body of Christ, the bread, you need to discern the body of Christ, the church, those who are with you. What was the problem in Corinth? They had no regard for one another. Some of them were eating the bread and others would be left out. Some of them were drinking all the wine to the point of drunkenness and it was shameful to the rest of them. The eating and drinking unworthily convicts them. It doesn't pass the test of doing it worthily. It actually proves that they're doing this in a way that is unworthy 
of the Lord and Him having His name on this meal. Now, the word here for unworthily modifies the eating and the drinking, not the eater and the drinker. That's a grammatical thing with adverbs and adjectives. If this was an adjective, then he would be saying that the eaters and drinkers are unworthy. That's not the concern. It's the behavior that Corinth is showing at the supper that is unworthy. The behavior is unworthy of being the Lord's Supper. And then he gives the second instruction. And we miss this. Because sometimes we're so individually focused on examining ourselves that we examine ourselves and don't notice the body. We may not shame others around us. I can't, I'm glad that we don't. But we may get so internally focused that we don't regard others around us. I've heard stories of a church in, uh, in Europe that in ancient times after the Protestant Reformation, they became so inwardly focused that what they did is in the pews, they put up stalls so you had blinders so that you could sit in your own little theater box and not be distracted by anybody else when you were partaking of the communion and when you were listening to the sermon. Yeah, it is. It's crazy, isn't it? It's like, I wish everybody else would go away. But we're supposed to come together. I'm still looking for pictures of that church. I've heard of it. I don't know. It might be anecdotal. And even if it is, the point is still made, right? That even if we don't put up physical walls, we can put up social walls. We can social distance for all the wrong reasons. And yet we can all be gathered in one building and and still separate. I'm looking at this text and it looks to me like it's very important that we regard the body of Christ when we come together to partake of the Lord's Supper. If there's one thing that we've learned that that this, this pandemic experience for the last two years when we had to go fully online, there, there's things that we gained from it, that, God, that we redeemed from it because God was able to use this experience to, to arrest us and to say, pay attention to what you're doing. What does this mean and why? One of the things we figured out is being together on this matters. It matters that we all do this together. It makes a difference. Now, I'm not saying that all those years where we were internally focused and, you know, and then we, we don't pay any attention to anybody else and the, the plates go on and you know, they're just passed around and you tune everybody out. I'm not saying that that was sinful or that any of us are, are you know, in danger of damnation for that. But I do think we can do this better than that. And I think the more that we regard one another, the closer we're getting to the idea that Paul lays out here. Notice, he makes this instruction to them, it's of the same weight and the same strength as you must prove yourself or examine yourself. He says, you must wait for one another. You must wait for one another. And you eat the meal together. 
So when we gather together, we're not here to, you know, rip and sip and run. We're not here to just, you know, mail in our, our you know, our devotion to God and say, God, I, I checked the list. I did the communion thing. That seems to matter to you. We're not here just to get our, our uh, you know, booster shot of, of grace. We're here in the presence of Christ and in the presence of those who are with us. And you know, that's the, that's the thing about the, the cross or the throne of God. That even when we come in devotion and we focus on the cross or we focus on the throne of God and we are so in prayer and so humbled, if we look up, we see Jesus on the cross. If we look up, we see God on the throne. But whenever you find yourself at that moment, look side to side and you might find that you're not alone. Something to think about. Now, in our, how do we do this then? What does this mean for us? Well, I think we just need to keep these things in mind. That in the way that we partake of the Lord's Supper, we need to prove and show that we are regarding the body of Christ and we are regarding the body and blood of the Lord. That all of that comes together. And sometimes I need you to help me with that and sometimes you need me to help you with that. So it's appropriate that we do this as a community. I'm not saying you can't partake of communion alone. But if you can be with us, even if you're with us online, you're still with us. And then let's wait for each other. Let's regard one another. That's why we go through this together and we've, we've put a little more attention on how we do this as one. We're going to sing these songs. And in this way, we bring together what we often call the, the different parts of worship. You know, we've got parts of worship, but sometimes we don't understand how all of those parts are seamless. If you remember the old Wendy's commercial where they talk about chicken nuggets and they say parts is parts. You know. Sometimes we can treat worship that way to where we just divide it up and it becomes nothing more than sort of a worship salad. But it's really meant to be part of a whole. Not only the time that we spend here, but the life of discipleship that we live and that we lead and that we share with others. It's all meant to be part of a whole. And if we stop and think about why we sing, we do it not only to praise God and because He had commanded it, but we do it for the benefit of one another. Here's a text from 1 Corinthians 14 when he says, My friends, when you meet to worship, you must do everything for the good of everyone there. That doesn't mean you have to find out what it is that makes everybody happy and pleases everybody. I'm going to preach things and say things that you don't want to hear. But that doesn't mean it's not good for you. And there's going to be things that I catch from worship that convict me of what I need to change. I may not like that, but it's good for me. So we want to do what builds up. In Ephesians 5, and Ephesians, Ephesus is where... Paul was when he wrote to the Corinthians. But here, he's, he's elsewhere and he's writing to the Ephesians and he mentions what singing and worshiping is all about and he goes to this issue of the Spirit. Don't get drunk on wine, he says, 
which produces depravity. Instead, be filled with the Spirit in the following ways. Speak to each other with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Sing and make music to the Lord in your hearts. Always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And submit to each other out of respect for Christ. So, the way we're going to do the Lord's Supper this morning, uh, again, we've, we've done it like this before, but we are going to sing a verse. And in singing this verse, yeah, again, I get it. It, it. it might seem different for some of us who are used to being so introspective and quiet. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, okay? There's a place for that. But there's also a place for this, where we speak to one another. And when I hear you singing these songs, it guides my thoughts. It helps me reflect. And in doing so, I am regarding the body. Hey, if it's, if it's not, you know, if you're still not sure about it, it's not to your liking, then do this. Regard the others who are sharing this with you. And I pray that we all have an experience of the Lord's grace in this and of His presence. We'll guide us around the table, and we will do two things. We will take this in a way that is worthy of the Lord, and we will regard the body, and we will wait for one another. So as we move into these songs, we're also moving into the experience of the Lord's Supper.